Welcome to the Soul Grit Podcast. I'm Ann Taylor McNeese, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also love Jesus, and I'm passionate about all things gospel and therapy. I created Soul Grit to be at the intersection of mental health and Christian faith. Christ followers need a place to ask questions and get answers about mental health. Join me as we dive into real stories and real questions from people who want to honor God with their hearts, souls, and minds. Hello, welcome back to the Soul Grit Podcast. This is Anne, and I'm here today with Rick Capriola, who is a licensed addiction counselor out of Texas. Hello, Rick. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program. Yeah, I'm eager to talk to you, Rick. So I only found out about your book just yesterday, and I was able to book you today to to have an interview. (laughs) So perfect timing. Um, We're going to talk today about uh, young people and addictions, because you have a new book that's come out. Can you tell us the name of your new book? Yes, it's called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Awesome. And so a lot of people that listen to this podcast are probably people that are either raising young people or have raised young people or who may be working in a church or community or or therapy setting where they're going to run across this problem of addicted kids. And so I'm really eager to hear your expertise. Before we get into that, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in this topic? Yeah, I, I actually started out in education, mm. uh, worked as uh, uh, in education in, in the state of Illinois for over 30 years. Also um, served as a hospital chaplain for about four years. I went through a program that's called clinical pastoral education, yes. which is training for, for chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. I did that for four years uh, while I was working uh, for the state. Um did began working at a mental health crisis center um, and then um, transitioned over into uh, mental health and substance abuse, was offered a position as an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. I worked for Menninger for over a decade where I treated both teenagers and adults diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And so, so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, what they'd used and how often and how young they started and so on. And I'd give them a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And, and the parents would look at me and they would say things like, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't think it was this bad. Yeah. And and these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best jobs they can. Mm-hmm. They miss the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. Mm-hmm. So after I retired from Menninger Clinic, I wanted to write this book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, to help parents better understand this issue, to be less frightened by it, to be aware of it, and and probably the best part is to know what the warning signs are, know what to look for. Because like anything else, 
if we know what the warning signs are, we're likely to catch it early and intervene, and it's less likely to become a real a real problem. So, you know, I'm hoping that this book will be a blessing to every Christian parent that's out there, that reading it, they will feel more confident, that they'll feel blessed that they have this information. And, you know, you hope you never need it, but if you do, you want to feel prepared. Yeah. So is your book more aimed at just a general parenting audience or is it specifically for Christian parents? It's for any parent uh, because substance abuse can affect any family and it can attack any child. It, you know, I think one of the dangers is we often think as parents that this can't happen to our child. This Mm -hmm. happens to other children. But I can say that there is no child that is totally protected from getting exposed to alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. There's protective environments, but no child is totally protected. It doesn't matter where you live, urban, suburban, rural. It doesn't matter what church you attend. It doesn't matter what your level of income. Every child is vulnerable to being captured by alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. So what are the addictions that are currently in in this age uh, hitting our young people? Well, for years, uh, decades, uh, teens have been attracted to alcohol and marijuana. Those mm-hmm. are their two primary sources of, of substances. And easy pr- to get. Right? Easy, easy to get. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to the pandemic, for about three years prior to the pandemic, we had we had been seeing an alarming increase in teenagers turning to vaping, either mm-hmm. nicotine or marijuana. The, the, the increase was dramatic for three years, just a, an alarming increase in these kids turning to vaping, either nicotine or, or marijuana. Then the pandemic came along, and what we saw was across the board, uh, a decline in teenagers using substances. They were confined at home. They weren't in school. They weren't among their peers. So we saw a dramatic decline in substance abuse among teenagers during that pandemic year. We now have new data that just came out in December, data that shows us what happened a year after the pandemic. And what we discovered is that there has there has been a, a slight rebound in kids turning back to using substances, not as high as it was before the pandemic, except for alcohol. Alcohol seemed to go back to almost where it was before the pandemic. But drugs like marijuana and vaping and some of these other drugs, um, we see a slight rebound. Now it'll take you know, a few more years of, of data to see if it's going to get back to the pre-pandemic level. But but we did see a rebound in kids turning back to substances after the pandemic. Can you talk about why vaping is so alluring for young people? Well, they've they, they, they've turned to vaping because um, it's it's easily obtainable. It's an easier way for them to get nicotine in marijuana, although they're getting higher concentrations of nicotine right. by vaping. Um, it's, it's easily concealable. Uh, many parents uh, 
probably don't even know what a vaping pen looks like. Mm -hmm. They can keep it in their pocket. They can take it to school. They can use it in school. They go to the boy's room or the girl's room. They pull out their vaping pen and they take a couple of puffs of it and then they go back to class. So it's it's very difficult for teachers and for parents, you know, to 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 recognize. Um, but but it is um, it is alarming the number of kids that are turning to vaping, both their, both nicotine um, and marijuana. Now, cigarette smoking is at an all-time low, mm -hmm. but what's happened is kids are getting their nicotine through vaping rather than through cigarettes. Yeah, it's like we've learned that smoking, cigarette smoking is bad, but this, for some reason, seems like a safer alternative when it's really not. It, it really isn't because, what, you know, when you're vaping, you're obviously putting these chemicals into your drug and into your brain. And, 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 and what parents need to understand is that the teenage brain is in the process of maturing and developing. Our brains don't get fully developed until around age 24 or 25. So when you start putting a substance any type of a, of an illicit substance into your body, it's going to hit your brain and has the potential of doing some real damage there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard it said that some parents are concerned about marijuana because it's a gateway drug, you know, that they're going to start using more illicit drugs after that. But I think the newer research is actually saying, hey, it's not that may be true, but that's not the concern. What we're concerned about is that your brain's not developed and you need to have that these years of your teenagehood and early 20s to develop your brain so that you can make good choices and not damage it before you even get to adulthood. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, it's, it's not so much the danger of it turning into a gateway drug. That's always a possibility. But I would be more concerned as a parent about its potential effect on my child's brain. Mm. When I was at Menninger Clinic, I worked with a number of teenagers that were smoking a lot of marijuana, often multiple times a day. Yeah. And when the test results came back uh, on these kids, what I noticed was that the processing speed of the brain was below average, mm -hmm. their short-term memory was impaired, and their motivation wasn't what it should be. Mm -hmm. These are changes that are going on in the brain that, that as parents, we might not notice because they're sort of underneath the surface. We uncovered them through psychological testing, right. but it's just an example of how these drugs can work within that maturing, developing adolescent brain and produce changes within the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like I mentioned this on a, a previous episode recently, that when you're like a good Christian girl, sometimes you don't choose some of these illicit addictions because you already know in your head, like that's off limits. But then we choose some of these other addictions that are more of what we would call process addiction. Yeah. So that could be internet use, or it could be eating, or it could be shopping or gambling or pornography or whatever it might be. So can you talk a little bit about how um, kids are getting involved in process addictions as well? That's an excellent question issue. Um, and, and it is such an important issue uh, that I, I put a chapter in my book on process addictions. And process addictions are things like eating disorders, 
they might be um, self-injury because eating disorders and self-injury sometimes, not always, but sometimes accompany a child using a substance. Mm -hmm. uh, but they also can include, you know, things like gambling, uh, internet addiction, gaming addiction, all of these that we put together as process addictions, which are behavioral type of addictions. We have the chemical addictions, which is the alcohol and the drugs, but we have behavioral addictions, which tend to be these process addictions, which have many of the same characteristics as a, as a chemical addiction, an alcohol or drug. They change the brain, they become compulsive behaviors, and they can lead to, 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 to negative consequences. But like alcohol and drugs, many times parents don't know the warning signs of what to look for for a child that might be uh, developing an eating disorder or self-harming themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's important that parents be aware of what those warning signs are as well. And that's why I put them in my book. Yeah. Would you mind running through some of those really quickly with us? Well, uh, for eating disorders, uh, you, you may have a child that's restricting their food or maybe overeating a lot. You might see a lot of fluctuation in weight gain and weight loss. You might have a child who is uh, spending a lot of time in the bathroom, perhaps purging. Um, for, for cutting, that's a difficult one for parents because kids kids can hide where they're self-injuring themselves. And self-injury comes in multiple forms. It might be somebody who is hitting themselves, banging their head, uh, or, or cutting themselves. And if they're cutting themselves, they're going to do it in places that are not readily observable, even to parents. You know, they might do it, you know, in, in ways that their clothing can hide. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the signs are you might notice, you know, um, some blood on their clothing, some blood on maybe their shirts and things like that or if it's a very hot day outside they're wear what are they doing they're wearing clothes that's more appropriate for for the fall or the winter um, so those are just little subtle things that that often you know parents you know miss yeah um and for other i think i think i'm trying to think in my circle what i would be most um likely to hear would be a child that's has more of like a gaming or a internet addiction yeah. so how can a parent know if my son just likes to play video games or my son is playing video games or is on the internet to the extent that this is impairing his functioning in life well, that's the key right there. If it's impairing their function in life, if it's having negative consequences, there's nothing wrong with a child getting on and playing video games. You know, that's that, that's entertaining. But like anything else, it can be compulsive and it can be destructive. So if you start to notice that as a result of your child in playing video games, that, you know, their behavior changes, their grades are slipping, they're staying up beyond reasonable times, they're playing at one or two o'clock in the morning, then it's it's become, you know, um, potentially a very problematic area that you need to intervene on. Mm -hmm. So what should parents do when they start picking up on some of these warning signs? Well, I think the first thing they do is have a conversation with their child. And by that, I mean, don't punish the child, don't threaten the child. You want to come at this conversation with an inquiring point of view, and you want to keep the focus on you. So for example, if you're concerned that your child might be 
smoking marijuana. You know, you, you want to approach this discussion by simply starting out and letting letting your child know that you suspect they might be using a, a drug, they might be smoking marijuana, and that you're frightened by that, you're concerned about that. Can can you help me understand why I'm so frightened by this? Mm -hmm. So the focus is on you and your feelings, but you're talking to the child about the issue from your perspective, your point of view, and seeing if the child will respond to that. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a discussion that's likely to go one of two ways. <laughs> it's either going to blow up and the child's going to become angry and defensive, or it might go the other way and you learn some things. But, but regardless of how those conversations go, if you're still concerned as a parent, you want to move to the next step and get the assessments done that I recommend in my book so that you can get the professionals to assess whether there's a problem or not. And if there is a problem, what's the treatment plan? What's the best thing to do to move forward? Yeah. So would you recommend that parents first go after they've had that conversation and they're still concerned, would they go to uh, their physician or a, a general therapist or specifically to a substance abuse counselor? What What's their next step? I, I would recommend that the first thing they should do is talk to the school counselor, okay. the school social worker, or the school psychologist. Uh, many of them can do some of these preliminary assessments for okay. you. If not, they can recommend professionals in the community that can do some of these assessments. And I have a chapter that that sort of guides parents in terms of what assessments should you get done. Okay. Uh, you know, you'll want an addictions assessment. You'll want a psychological assessment, because many times um, a child will be using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue mm -hmm. that sadly gets undiagnosed and untreated. Mm -hmm. Many of the kids that I've worked with, many of the teenagers that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. Yeah. So for some kids, not all, but for some kids, there may be this underlying psychological reason why they're using a substance to medicate that issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe it's an emerging personality disorder, maybe it's some type of trauma at school. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, many of these kids, we, 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 we recognize the substance use, but we miss the underlying issue because it was never assessed and diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that a lot with ADHD, where yeah. a parent might be really resistant to having their kids on a stimulant medication. But what ends up happening by the, the late teen years, they are tired of not feeling like they're yeah. with it with their peers, and they end up self medicating in various ways, and it can actually be more dangerous. Absolutely. You know, kids aren't any different than adults. We don't like having uncomfortable thoughts or feelings or memories. We're not we're not likely to just sit with those. We're going to do something to get rid of them. And unfortunately, many times that ends up with a child turning to a substance, uh, maybe that's been recommended by a friend mm -hmm. uh, or something that they've heard on the Internet or something they picked up on their own. Yeah. If you've listened to the Soul Brit podcast for even one episode, you know my guests and I believe that when we integrate the power of God with the wisdom of modern psychology, we get supercharged healing, change, and growth in counseling. As a Christian therapist, however, 
I realize that there are many practitioners out there who are personally Christians but don't know how to integrate their faith into their counseling practices. That's why I created the e-course, Faith Integration for Therapists. In this premium five-module course, therapists who love Jesus will learn everything from understanding their calling to marketing their practices to Christians to adapting evidence-based interventions to honor our faith. You can learn more about the online course at www.soulgritresources.com courses and send an email to info at soulgritresources.com to receive a discount code. And so, Rick, a lot of the listeners here, I would assume most of the listeners for this podcast are people with a Christian faith. And so mm-hmm. how do you uh, see that our faith informs how we handle this? Well, our faith, you know, uh, it, it has a lot to, to say about parenting, mm. raising our children, raising our children in a Christian environment. Um, you know, guiding them, you know, leading them down the right path. There's a lot in the Bible about uh, parenting and, and, and what our responsibility is as a Christian parent to guide our child and to protect our child and to lead them down the right path. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways that we do that as a Christian parent is to be aware of the dangers that our children face in the real world. And one of those dangers dangers is alcohol and substance use. So to fulfill our Christian responsibility, I think one of the things that we can do is learn as much as we can about these substances that are out there, Mm -hmm. learn what we can about how these drugs work in the brain, and learn the warning signs so that we feel that we're adequately prepared to fulfill our role as a Christian parent and protect our child. So if we know what to look for, if we feel better, better prepared, then hopefully we feel that as a Christian parent, we're doing everything we can to raise our child in a Christian environment that, that that, that protects that child to the best of our ability. We can't protect them completely, right. but we can protect them to the best of our ability. And that means being more knowledgeable about, about any of these threats that might be uh, in front of our child. Yeah. So we can't be head in the sand kind of people. We ha- have to actually know about this so we can be informed on how to keep our kids safe. Absolutely. We, you know, knowledge is power. So the more we know about this topic or, or any other topic, the more we feel as a parent that we're adequately prepared to deal with it. We hope we don't have to, but we feel that if we do, we we are prepared you know so many times parents get caught in in finding out their child is using a substance and 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 they're blindsided and they and they don't know what to do so it becomes a crisis situation Mm -hmm. and if we just feel better prepared then we feel less afraid and more confident and that's what i'm hoping this book Mm -hmm. will help parents feel yeah. So does your book have some of those resources for parents to learn about these things, or do you also suggest other resources? Well, I suggest that you begin by reading The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent <laughs> Substance Abuse. We're going to do that. <laughs> because because in there, you're going to learn what what's out there on the street. You know, most parents are 
are familiar with alcohol and drugs or alcohol and marijuana, they may not be so familiar with some of the other drugs that these kids have access to. So I go through a number of chapters that help parents get a basic understanding of what's out there on the street. Then there's a chapter on how the brain works. And it's important that we as parents understand how our child's brain works and how vulnerable it is and how drugs work in the brain. So there's a chapter on that. Um, there are uh, chapters on what a assessments you should get done if you feel your child might be using a substance. There's a chapter on what all the treatment options are, everything from, you know, outpatient to intensive outpatient to residential program. There's a chapter that helps parents identify how do you know if a program's good? You know, what questions should I ask a potential provider? So all of these are packed into about 100 pages because I know parents are busy. They don't have time <laughs> to read volumes of information. So I tried to keep the chapters short and 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 not loaded down with a lot of jargon or technical information. It's a book I hope they can read, put on the bookshelf and feel, okay, I've got this. Great. And I wish that I was a little more prepared for this conversation. But as I said, I only met you yesterday online. <laughs> so you've, I done didn't a, have, you've done a great job. You've done a great time. job. But in saying that, at least we get to explain all these pieces. You're explaining to me what's available in the book, and then other people get to hear that too. So I'm yeah. thankful for that. Do you think that parents should, once they have this knowledge, say they've read The Addicted Child and they're understanding what drugs are out there and what they're doing in your brain and all of that, should parents be explaining that to their children? Or should they just use that knowledge if it comes up? Well, I think, I think the primary benefit is that parents feel better prepared and less afraid. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the goal. That's, okay. that's, that's why I wrote the book in terms of talking to your child, uh, depending on the age of your child, let's say you have an elementary child, an elementary age child. Um, I would, I would help that child understand the importance of their brain. I wouldn't talk about drugs and alcohol at a, at a very early age, but I would want that child to understand as they go through elementary school, the importance of their brain, what their brain does, different areas of the brain and what they're responsible for. You know, we have an area that helps us walk. We have an area that helps us talk and so on. So that by the time they've gotten through elementary school, they've, they've gotten an appreciation uh, of their brain and the importance of their brain and the need to protect their brain. Then as they get in middle school and high school, I think you can start to introduce the idea of how these drugs work in the brain mm -hmm. so that they can see that these drugs can do damage to the brain. So you start by educating them about the importance of the brain and protecting yeah. it, and then you introduce the drugs. Okay. I can tell you that with the teenagers that I've worked with, it, it doesn't do any good to tell them drugs are illegal, right. doesn't do any good to tell them that drugs are bad or that they're not going to graduate or their grades may go down because they don't believe any of that. But what they do care about and what they're interested in is the science, is the yeah. neuroscience, understanding their brain. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say to parents is the surveys that we have seen over the years tell us two things. Number one, these drugs are readily available to kids and they know it. Mm. When we ask teenagers, how easy is it for you to get marijuana? Over 80% tell us it's no big deal. Yeah. We ask them, how easy is it for you to get alcohol? 
again, over 80% tell us it's no big deal. So these drugs are readily available and these kids know it. Then we ask them, how harmful are these drugs? And they tell us they don't think these drugs are very harmful. Well, how harmful is marijuana? 80%. We don't think it's a big deal, not harmful. How harmful is drinking alcohol almost every day? Again, we don't think that's so bad. So when you have the drugs readily available and the kids don't think they're harmful, you have a perfect scenario for yeah. kids getting involved in substances. Yeah. I feel like it might be really similar to how we can talk to our kids about sex or even about pornography is that mm -hmm. uh, for a long time as Christians, we've just heard, don't do it. It's a sin. It's bad. Just stay away from it. But what we're learning in more recent years is like, if you use pornography, this is what happens to your brain. This is what happens to future relationships and things like that. And so it's a little bit easier for us to talk about it, even with people who are not believers, because we can say, hey, look, it's not going to be good for you. And just take away the sin part. It's just not going to be good for you. you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And and with 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 adolescents and teenagers, you really have to tie into their curiosity, mm -hmm. and and their 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 interest in learning about things and use that as sort of the discussion point on how you can get into these issues. Yeah, that's a good advice. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, anything else you'd like to share with us from the work that you've been doing? I just, you know, I'm so many times parents get blindsided by this stuff. And, and I would say, one other thing to parents, if you're in this situation where you're dealing with a child that's using a substance, it's a very stressful time. It's yeah. a very scary time. And often the focus is on the child. But what I would say is if you're a parent and you go through this, um, you, you want to um, build a support system for mm -hmm. you because yeah. you're going to need it. This is going to be a journey. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's your church community, which can mm -hmm. provide a tremendous support system for you. Um, maybe it's your pastor or your church leaders, um, but whatever it is, you want to build a support system that will support you as you go through this, yeah. because you're going to have a whole range of emotions that are very common and, and you know, the more support you build around yourself, the easier it will be on this journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm guessing you're, you're going to develop more tools that way, and you're going to have a better approach to that child who is also hurting, too. You are going to develop more tools. You're going to have more... Um, more companionship you're going and you may even have people who have in the past gone through the same thing that you're going through mm -hmm. uh or maybe going through the same thing as you're going through right now yeah. uh, but the thing is you won't be you won't feel so alone going through mm -hmm. this because this can be a lonely journey if you don't have a support system mm -hmm. yeah and i will always point out on the podcast that your therapist is a part of that <laughs> support system and yeah. it's there there's no shame in needing to go to therapy when 
somebody else in your family is the one that has an identified problem. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's probably one of the best things that you can do to build a support system is to is is to get involved with a counselor or a therapist that will devote time to helping you, listening to you and going through this journey with you, um, because it can be a tremendous asset. Yes, thank you. So Rick, the way that I always end up my podcast episodes is by asking my guests, what are you doing for soul care? For soul care, um, daily Bible readings, mm -hmm. uh, daily prayer, mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to keep that spiritual connection on a day to day basis. I start the day with a scripture reading um, and um, you know, it's, it's the way that I start my day uh, is with scripture. Yeah. Um, and I find that that's for me, that's the best way to start a day. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So where can people find out more about you or, or buy your book? The best place to go is the book's website which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com, helptheaddictedchild.com. When you get to the website, there will be endorsements and reviews you can read. There's a sample chapter. Um, there's also a parent workbook that I put together that oh, I great. would encourage parents to get. And I think the parent workbook is best used in consultation with a counselor or a therapist mm -hmm. where you can work the exercises and, and then go to the counselor or the therapist and get feedback on what you've written into the workbook. The book is available as a Kindle or a paperback. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a link on the website that will take you directly to Amazon where you can order the book. Um, and then there's a link that if you want to contact me, uh, you can do that as well. So the easiest way to go is uh, to find information is to go to www.helptheaddictedchild.com. All right. That's going to be in our show notes. So make sure you click on that and you can buy the book. You can get, I, I really like the idea of that parent workbook because I work mostly with adults, not with children. And so I know I've had people in my practice that are struggling through this. So I'm really glad to hear that there's a resource that I could use to help them as they go through that journey. And Absolutely. And I, and, and as I said, I think it's best used. It's a, it's a very brief workbook. Uh, <laughs> if you take a look at it, you'll see that the exercises are really very simple. There's an exercise to, to help with anxiety. Um, and, and there are work, there are simple little exercises to help the parent get out on paper what they're going through. Yeah. And, and I really think that it's best used with a therapist and a counselor that can, that can give you feedback on it. It's, it's, yeah. it's a starting point for a discussion, but it's something really simple that a parent can fill out, take to their counselor and say, let's talk about this. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you for putting your life's work into this and for creating these thank resources. You. And also thank you for being with us here to share your wisdom on the podcast. Thank you, Anne. It's been a blessing to be here and uh, to be able to talk to you about this issue. And hopefully everyone who listens to us will, will walk away feeling a little bit more informed uh, about this topic. I'm sure they will. The Soul Grit Podcast is a production of Soul Grit Resources. You can find more at soulgritresources.com or on the socials at Soul Grit Resources. You can email me at info at soulgritresources.com.